Promise No Promises, Feminism Under Corona, Episode 5, Renewing the Script. The podcast Promise No Promises now continues with a special Feminism Under Corona chapter. Over the next few months, this new series of 10 episodes arise from conversations between Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different artistic disciplines and areas of research and life practice. More than simple answers or solutions, this series of personal conversations is an attempt to point out different directions, feelings, expectations, sequels and individual stories in times of the recent crisis provoked by COVID-19. It is also a tool for a collectively inhabited feminism, where not only gender, class and race imbalances are being reinforced, but are even becoming more visible in the current situation. This fourth episode appears after a conversation with interdisciplinary artist Melanie Jane Wolfe, whose work critically circulates within the flow of immaterial capital by using the performative condition and potential of our identities. A few days before we met on our respective screens, Melanie Jame published on the Coven Berlin Project website a text entitled Beginning, Middle Age, End, Script Notes and Revisions. They are texts that we read and they are texts that read us too. They are embodied texts. As a sort of open letter without a specific addressee, Melanie Jame analyzed with her sharp sense of humor her personal and biographical relationship with the middle-aged woman as a trope that lurks in the bodies of all adult women. The tyranny of age is omnipresent and ambiguous. To insult someone, we use childhood as an offense. Please don't be a child, as if being a child were a terrible thing. However, being or looking young tends to be used as a compliment after a certain age. To define thoughtful and prudent behavior, we use the opposite. You are behaving like an adult. Although they do not come from the same etymological source, I particularly like that the words adult and adulterate are so close. Falsification and alteration stalk the adult, predicting as tangentially indicated that performative substrate of any identity we embody. However, appearances do not deceive. They are openly apparent. They point to the superficial narrative condition of all truth. The intimate relationship between the concepts of persona and person is not merely grammatical. The script I prepared for the conversation with Melanie Jame, and from which we soon deviated, began with her relationship with the middle-aged woman as a Western trope, a cultural construction that cuts across women's bodies becoming part of them despite our resistant tactics. Why is looking younger understood as a compliment? What's wrong with aging? What are the consequences of getting old too soon? What does 35 mean for the life of a woman artist? The expression, the body as a battlefield, in Melanie James Wolfe's work, becomes the body as political riddle. Some bodies are more difficult to grasp than others. For example, queer bodies whose alteration of social norms exist on several levels, as Sarah Ahmed tells us in her book The Promise of Happiness. Although the mandate of motherhood is a social imposition of women's bodies, being a mother at a certain age becomes a stigma. So is not being a mother. Gynecology is still a fundamentally essentialist medical science that perceives women's bodies as reproducing bodies. It is not necessary to have a uterus to be a woman, just as there are men who can become pregnant. Why is motherhood still understood as a role, as a place of arrival and not as an ongoing social relationship or an unstable space? Why, as Melanie James says, is it necessary to assign a gender to a baby or to childcare? And here I would like to point out that although I felt it was very important to talk about parenthood with Melanie James, I also feel it is a sexist act from my side. Male identity is not defined by parental status. No one defines childless men over 40 as non-fathers or child-free. Nor do they define themselves as such, as my friend Veronica Alessandro recently noted. 
This conversation with Melanie Jane Wolf took place in mid-August. We were both in Berlin. She was in her studio at Künstlerhaus Britannien and I was in my office room. We incorporated into our conversation some of the many elephants in the art room, such as social class, age or undisciplined bodies in the field of performance, dance and choreography. It was also an opportunity to talk about the social networks and the inevitable perverse functioning of symbolic capital in and through them. As Melanie Jane points out, social networks make a constructions of personas possible that used to happen in the media space of music videos. Pop is a fundamental component of her artistic and vital practice, including many attributes, gestures, behaviors and objects of a type of femininity that is still stigmatized by a feminism that denies the sensual and pleasurable dimension of bodies, or that does not include sex workers with all its political agenda. But can a feminism that does not take into account all the factors of the complicated and effective relationship between privilege and oppression still be called feminism? What is the meaning and use of essences in a performative reality? The gaze, with capital letters, which Melanie Jame incorporates into her text as a sort of character within her story, also infiltrates feminism as the manner of a judge who determines the validity or appropriateness of those bodies that are not only gazed at, but are continually surveilled and surveilling. But just as scripts and conversations exist to deviate from them, so do social scripts exist to be renewed and consequently refused. I think that my interest in talking about the middle-aged woman, of course, was born of my own aging, especially when I turned around 42. I just turned 45, like three days ago. When I turned 42, there was this particular reckoning for me, not about anything to do with any kind of essentialist gender, politic or representation, but purely on the plane of being a mortal being <laughs> and going, wow, this is the first time where every birthday it's always felt as though I still had more years to live than I had lived. And then at 42, this ratio tips over with a very optimistic assumption that, you know, I'm going to live into my 80s. The women in my family do live for a long time. My great-grandmother was 104 and, like, My grandma was like 87 when she died. But this moment, this tipping point of 42, wow, I have less years to live than I have lived. The thing that led me to write about the middle-aged woman as a trope, not as a reality, but as a trope, as a specific fiction and a specific narrative that this category of woman, especially from a feminist position, You know, for me, feminism, by definition, has to remain constantly in renewal and revision about its positionality. And I feel that the definition of woman has to also remain porous and flexible. So the middle-aged woman is a trope or a narrative that can be applied to anyone who is understood as woman. And what was interesting when I published the text was I was hearing from a lot of gay men in their late 40s who were really relating to the text. This is what I mean, you know, it's a script... I wrote about the middle-aged woman as a trope in relationship to the gaze, you know, capital G. And the gaze being what we kind of understand as the machinery of the white Western middle class, late capitalist condition and dominance of how, at least for me in my world where I live, the dominance on how one can understand and take pleasure in their subjectivity. And so it's about the gaze denying the pleasure of subjectivity to the middle-aged woman and turning the middle-aged woman into a trope wherein women get to a certain age and from there on out, life should be lived as an apology, particularly because of signs of aging that don't match up to showing any reproductive use value and these kinds of things, which are complete bullshit, but are very strongly written into the culture that I was raised in and the culture that I live in. I kind of wrote about the violence of that 
the reception was very interesting in terms of who responded to me about feeling very spoken to. Because, of course, I was terrified to publish the text also for kind of just professional reasons. And this is a class thing also. You know, we could talk about chrononormativity, this thing of having lied about my age for so long because I arrived at my art practice late and this insistence that people write the place they come from and the year they were born, which is all about locating people within certain demographics that aren't necessarily representative of who these people are and going to openings and seeing born in 1986, born in 1992, born last week. The window closes. I just don't know why this when a person is born should be relevant, especially if someone is born outside of the white middle class centre. People do care work. I know coming from a working class background that people from where I'm from are raised to not believe in themselves at all. The idea that one could become an artist for a living, people are actively dissuaded from that because how will they survive if they're only going to be disappointed? So getting out from under those mythologies, doing political work, being in prison, all number of things, just doing something else can mean that you don't go, ah, oh, I know exactly where I'm going and now I'm doing my master's at 22 and now I can afford to do unpaid internships because my parents will pay for my rent to live in the big city, these structures. And so the middle-aged woman and my reconfiguring of her is about opening up also this discourse around the violence of chrononormative or against temporal deviance. Class is one of the elephants in the room. I mean, there's still a lot of racial violence hanging around as an elephant in the room. I think intersectionality invites us to be able to think about at, at least minimum three things in dynamic processual relation to one another. And that's really hard to do. I can speak about class and my experience of coming from a working class background in a way that I can't talk about structural racial issues if I can only speak about them from my position of my whiteness, which of course I am working to actively deconstruct. But for me to talk about class is something I, I feel confident in talking about and also as though it's something people don't talk about. And it interests me to talk about it a lot. This intersection of whiteness and class, class identity, um, something that I really started to unpack with this renewed moment of amplification of the struggle for black liberation, which called on white people to unpack and examine the hidden and not so hidden aspects of their own inevitable racism. And for me, that came very much through looking at this narrative or this mode of being in the world of the working class hero or working class heroics, this kind of struggle and the heroism of the struggle. And this is a narrative that I was raised with. It's a narrative that I feel very emotionally entangled with in a way that's very hard to explain because it's very emotional and I came to understand how this is a very white working class hero that I have attached myself to and understand myself through and understand my oppression in the mix of stratification of society societies and the world and unpacking that came from a few directions at once it came from my distance from my working class background through social mobility through this important call for people to examine their whiteness and also just through my ability to look less emotively at the union movement the white labor union movement in Australia or Germany wherever and the racism of those movements and how that racism because of the whiteness impedes gets in the way of or participates in the blockage or the impediment of a more broadly embraced socialist politic at this particular time in history. Because also, if you grow up working class, then you know, and I kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, this thing around self-belief and this thing about if you have any, all of this saving and working hard and survival and duh, but if you actually enact any social upward mobility, then you're a class traitor. And then what? You think you're better than us. Who do you think you are now? You're too good for us now. Of course, I'm in a very privileged position, but I am still living on a very, very small wage. 
I've learned to manage those things. But my kid starts keto. My child is very young, like 10, 11 months old now. We got the keto place, the kindergarten place. I went for a little drive-by with the pram to check it out. And then we got there. I realized that somehow I was the bougie art mom. I was this figure that I had seen someone else's mom be back in the day. And it was really uncomfortable for me to kind of go, well, I look like I'm from somewhere else, not in terms of country, but in terms of class background. And I don't. And I had this anxiety about how do I perform to these people that they that I come from the same place and da-da-da. And of course, I don't come from exactly the same place. I don't come from exactly the same intersections. We live quite far outside the ring in Berlin. But it was just this moment, the reckoning with the guilt around having a life that is pleasurable. Class is cultural, no? And being working class is cultural. And it differs, of course, from country to country. There's a whole bunch of things that shift what that might be. But I can always tell someone's middle class or grew up middle class because they have this idea of the working class that is some kind of, you know, in the salt mines, 1850s industrial revolution proletariat who aren't allowed to have holidays. And they'll be like, oh, you know, they ha- but they go on holidays and they da 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 you know, talking about, especially in the UK, you know, artists who identify as working class. Because the class war is so extreme in the UK and austerity has done a number on people. And it's not about being working class, it's about living in poverty, which is a different thing again. But yeah, being working class is a cultural thing. It's so complicated. There are so many people who are middle class or upper middle class and they're really anxious to kind of appropriate and try on working class aesthetics. This whole Berlin Adidas rave nation aesthetic, the politics of that aesthetic, I'm not sure that that's entirely clear anymore to the people enjoying the aesthetic in some cases. This is what happens in the neoliberal condition also, and I guess we'll talk about it a bit later, the word queer, but the word privilege as a beginning, you know, this co-option of language very quickly. I think in terms of the word privilege, it's about recognizing your degrees of access to the center and access to the center as a means of survival. And, you know, in terms of my own class rage, sometimes that is incandescent still, and it just eats me up. But it is often about a certain dissonance that people with a lot more privilege or or access have to recognizing just how bad people have it, you know. But it was also like until I moved to Berlin and was hanging out with all these kind of like art kids, because when I say I have no money, it means I've got like 20 cents I'm looking for in the back of the couch. And then it was only when I moved here, of course it happens in Australia, but I was just wasn't in this world. I wasn't hanging out with middle class people. And people say they have no money, but they actually have like 30 grand in a savings account. Do you know what I mean? And this is a huge difference and dissonance and this kind of, oh, it's cool to say you're broke. There's nothing fucking cool about being broke. It's terrifying. It's terrifying because it's about eating. And for me now, especially with a child, it's like this baseline survival concerns. I'm from a working class background. My co-parent is not. And so there's a, this other kind of dynamic at work. And for the provision for my kid. But like there's a lot of people who go without meals so their kids can eat, stuff like that. You know, that's what being broke is. Oh, I'm so skint. And it's like you're not. You can call your mom or your dad and they're going to bail you out of any situation. And that is privilege and that needs to be acknowledged. People need to really examine their positionality, even if it doesn't feel cool. I mean, generally it doesn't feel cool to recognize your privilege. It feels awkward. And it should because... That's what radical politics should do, no? I think it's important to distinguish or to define our terms in terms of uh, what the fear around the ecological crisis is. Is it the fear of what my child and other people's child, the next generation, will go through in terms of 
horrific abject living conditions, food shortages, so on? Or are we talking about overpopulation in terms of the coming shortages, uninhabitable environments? They're already happening in multiple places in the world. We do have the power to change those things. If it's about overpopulation, then I don't subscribe to this narrative. I feel that the overpopulation narrative, like have I contributed another unneeded life in the world? And I think that it's a kind of eco-fascist line that is largely, to my mind, about trying to blame the global south for the ecological mess or messes that settler colonialism, hyper-capitalism have produced. Am I scared of the ecological crisis in my child? Yes, I am. This was a a very conscious conversation that my co-parent and I had. And then I had my baby. And like many things, the child was an abstract idea until they were right there in my arms. And their vulnerability absolutely overwhelmed me. It was a huge lesson. It broke something open inside me where this whole new kind of flood of empathy and neuroses and stuff like whoa and I was like what about the future like as though we hadn't had the conversation you know and I remember like this tidal hormonal swell with this newborn and crying and going I'm so sorry you know I'm so sorry and I don't know that I can justify that choice sufficiently but I guess um, here we are The desire to have my child was huge and I also an optimist. If I were existing in a state of pure political pessimism, my politics would be kind of impotent anyway, no? They would be redundant. I grew up with this, you know, armchair socialist pessimism. I can't stand it. You know, doom, 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 doom. I do what I can to make positive changes but I I don't give up the fight that easily. My kid is an absolute joy in the world. They're full of magic and they teach me things and make things more urgent to me in terms of my political participation in a way I wouldn't have if I didn't have a kid, in all honesty. Exactly. Things that are normal in different ethnic constellations, different class constellations where it's already very normalized and has never not been normalized for people to participate together in raising children. It's a very individualist, white, middle class idea that we have our separate kids who are in competition with one another. These ideas of collective child rearing are nothing new and are not out of practice in many places in the world. They're very actively happening. And yes, my feminist politic absolutely invites them, but my feminist politic certainly hasn't invented them. Feminism in this sense is very much about the distribution of labor. This is central to my feminism, but this is also central to my choice to have a child. I had several abortions and my last abortion, I think I was 40. It was still like, it was like a teenage pregnancy, you know, oh my God, my life is over, you know, like this real kind of particular script. But then when I got together with my partner and we decided to have a kid, it was because I knew that we would very honestly, not in a performative way, in a very honest, real way, absolutely divide the labor of child rearing between us. When we said we were committing to raising this kid, we really were. Whereas before it had been a kind of a, wow, I'm on my own. How would I do this? I live in a foreign country. It takes a minimum of like four people to raise a kid. Minimum. It's so labor intensive. This notion of motherhood, like womanhood, is complicated. I don't really think of myself as a mother. I'm a parent. I'm in a conversation with a child and another parent. And we kind of really try and and stick with that, you know, as a conscious political thing, a sort of a kind of a modeling around gender and labor to our child and with our child. It's very personal, but I never understood motherhood as being this kind of final moment that would, you know, finally heal my subjectivity, which had been out in the wilderness, stumbling around, 
scratching around looking for itself, you know, until the miracle of the child. The child, capital C, I think is also a very dangerous concept. But I was 40, just turned 44 when I had my child. And um, the misogyny of Western medicine and gynecology is already extreme. But then for women over 35, pregnancies are called geriatric pregnancies, meaning extremely old. (laughs) Being pregnant brought me into this space where I was, you know, Googling a lot and found myself in these mother's forums and pregnancy forums, which put me in very alarming contact with the deeply heterosexual world in a way that I have nothing to do with in my day-to-day and haven't had for a very long time. wound up in these forums and people talking about motherhood and, and using language that I don't even want to repeat that is so gender essentialist and really brought to my attention how much uh, women in this kind of deeply heterosexual, normal, everyday, most people world is very much about really discouraging women from being in connection and contact with their bodies, especially at this moment where you're actually growing a whole other human being in your belly. And that's fucking wild. But no, no, it's distant and you don't understand and da, 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 and lots of guilt and shame. These forums about like, are you going to let your man see you actually watch the baby come out because maybe he won't want you after that. My jaw is like on the floor and I'm just like, I haven't heard this kind of chit chat since growing up in Tasmania or working in a strip club. This level of woman's body as vessel for a very specific kind of male pleasure and I don't know, all of this stuff. But I was also in these women in age forums, you know, and women, again, the middle-aged woman whose life must be an apology, almost this insistence that especially towards the end of the pregnancy when, first of all, there were lots of tests. Don't get your hopes up. We have to do these tests because, you know, and the whole narrative is very much that it's like, because it's highly unlikely that a woman of your age will have a normal baby. So, like, there's this whole ableist thing going on. A normal baby or that it will go to term, you know. So it's this constant anxiety. You're encouraged to be in this constant anxious state and always at your age and at your age and at your age and... You know, like I got pregnant straight away. It was like, we're going to have a kid, going to get pregnant. Cool, did it. There's lots of different circumstances, but it wasn't some kind of epic saga miracle baby where the dried up old hag had come out for one last chance. This kind of disdain that I was finding in these medical offices, like what were you even doing fucking, you know, because my partner is 15 years younger than me. What are you doing wasting this person's time? really harsh narratives that are really out there and circulating in a way that I had kind of forgotten because I very carefully and luckily have been able to construct a life where I'm just not in contact with that stuff because it makes me so angry and it's just so miserable. Then I had my kid and it was all fine. The misogyny and then the ageism and the ableism on top of the misogyny of Western medicine, it was like a crash course in a lot of stuff that had made me forget certain subset of feminisms that became again important for me. This collectivizing is important because that's, I also wrote about that in the article, The, the Gays and the Middle-Aged Woman, is there's a very real thing that's happening in Australia, at least, where the fastest growing demographic of homeless people is women in their 50s. Okay, so the reproductive failure begins and the heteronormative script is what these women have grown up to believe in and understand. And all of that care work is completely insidiously devalued. And women are ending up out on the street. This is what the machinery does, is it stops the political imagination to be able to organize and collectivize and be together. And This thing happens when I do a confessional. <laughs> like five years ago, I made a work called Mira Fuchs, a performance work that was 
drawing on this biographical information of me, I was a stripper for eight years in a club in Melbourne. This very particular, let's call it a curatorial moment where sex work was very like so hot right now, you know, and suddenly we were allowed to like whores, whatever. And I happened to be one. And so, but I was so articulate. And so there I was, and I was being asked to talk about that a lot. And then that kind of petered out as things rolled on in terms of the discourse's interest and hunger for people with lived experience about whatever intersection is so hot right now. And now I'm being asked, starting to get invitations to talk about being a mother. I talk about being a mother because I am having an art practice and being a mother. It's conditions, right? It's the conditions that make that possible. I live in Germany and we have Kita and we have Elton Geld and the state, for nefarious, very Christian reasons, is very interested in people reproducing. I live in a state, in a place where childcare is free. That's how I do it. But also, there are hairdressers who have kids and do work. There are doctors and do... This exceptionalism about the artist's practice and making and having a child, I'm deeply suspicious of. It's also very much to do with the fact that the labor that's happening in the domestic sphere with the child rearing is perhaps still falling on the woman. I'm really curious about this use of the word partner. If you're not having frequent, non-emotive, very honest assessments of the division of labor between you and the person you're with, are they really your partner, babe? (laughs) We shouldn't essentialize to the point where we're assuming that people in queer relationships who have children are somehow doing some kind of Marxist futurist model of how things should be. The division of labor is the division of labor, and I think it's also something that happens because the person who has given birth, irrespective of their gender or their sexuality or the constellation of their family structure or child-raising agreement, there are certain acts of labor that come when you've given birth physically to a child yourself that only the birth giver can really do. Breastfeeding, certain bonding, or you're also really tired, all of these things, and those circumstances lead to labor being divided in a certain way, especially if someone's got to go back to work very quickly because there's not enough money, which can lead to a traditional situation quite quickly, you know? I think it's a folly to go, this is another thing to hate men about. Sometimes I get insane, like with my class rage, I get into an insanely like nuclear rage about men but then I really have tried over the last couple of years to go no the thing that is really driving me insane is the social agreement about what a man is or can be my friend Sibella talks about not redistributing violence as this stays with me all the time it's not men it's the agreement on what men can and should be and that's helpful This question around if the gender of the child is different to the gender of the person having the child. We, together, my co-parent and I, made a very conscious decision to not gender our child. One of the biggest and most shocking aspects of the materiality of pregnancy is people's sense of entitlement to your body and to your bump. So to your belly as something separate to you. And so people put their hands on you They put their hands on your stomach and they say, what is it? What is it? And not just like old ladies in the supermarket, but also like super right on queer kids, you know, running into them in cotty. And it's like, is it a boy or a girl? It's a baby. And so this thing of people want to put their hands on and they want to like affectively already begin a certain kind of programmation of the gender along a binary People are always like, oh, we just mean well. It's just something that you say. But this is these microaggressions that produce the whole violence of the politic, no? And why is a pregnant, a person with a pregnant body, am I somehow now outside of the realms of consent? Which I think comes into something around reproductive politics, which is where my body is really owned by the society. Having the pregnancy, giving birth, I also 
I had a very long labour and an emergency caesarean, 36 hours in. So it was quite arduous, but it's this real threshold. And so you go through all of this, okay, wow, now I've got to be awake to breastfeed you all the time. So it doesn't stop. And exactly, most people are really only concerned with beating the baby. I thought I really knew what I was in for in terms of the labor and the intensity of having a newborn child. Nothing can prepare you. It's lived knowledge. You've either crossed that threshold or you haven't. But then in terms of the, my art practice and my body, I had the premiere of a major new work when I was seven months pregnant. <laughs> and I look, at, I look at this footage now. And it was like this heat wave in Berlin. It was like 45 degrees or something. And we're like schwitzing, like sweating on stage. And I'm just looking at this footage now just going, you insane person. I think I was kind of maniacally determined that the pregnancy and my baby and my becoming a parent or, you know, for the sake of argument, a mother was some kind of shift in my subjectivity. So I was kind of like gunning right to the end, making films, doing this, doing that. That felt very important to me because I knew I was then going to be out of the game for a minute. You know what I mean? Like looking after the kid. I would really love to do the show again. And we were meant to, but COVID happened because as someone who is a mover and a dancer and a performer, I really do want to know what it's like to perform this show with a different physicality, with a physicality that is more normal for me than heavily pregnant. I think this idea of the superwoman or the supermom or the whatever, you know, these are very neoliberal scripts. I certainly don't feel like I'm doing what I'm doing in order to prove anything to anybody. Probably still doing it because, the, you know, my tail is still on fire from like firing myself out of the working class gate. So it's like I really don't take anything I have for granted. Right before like this moment with COVID and everything else, I was growing very kind of disillusioned or frustrated with the theatre form, with the form of and with audiences. I love performing. I love making images with bodies. I love the affective contract, but I'm also very critical of audiences. And I think it's time to kind of re-examine the audience performer contract because it's violent. I feel that like we've gone so far into this, you know, we're going to have an immersive experience. It's for the audience and the audience collectivizes a chorus of wieldy, unwieldy affect, you know, and they love you or they hate you. The room is cold, the room is hot. I mean, I've always known and I manipulate it. That's my skill as a performer, one of them. But I became acutely aware of it when I did my first performance when I was pregnant. I was about four months pregnant and I was showing videos and activating a video installation, which is sort of where my work is going more and more into text and video, which is kind of a good, incidentally, a good moment to bounce in terms of circumstances right now. I was so aware of this unwieldy energy from the audience and my child in my belly and I was like really like kind of get the fuck away from me and my kid in this very like primal way and still so, and did the performance in quite a hard way because I was feeling deflecting and, and so this audience former contract is something that I'm still trying to articulate my critique of. I'm really enjoying making videos. The last thing I made before I had the baby was a video. We corrected this Picasso sketch, me and my very good friend. And I was quite pregnant in that video also. But I think uh, in terms of performers, what I'm seeing also is, and this is controversial opinion, for so long I've heard people in the performance and choreographic world go, People in the visual art world think performance is just doing things in front of people and it's limited and it invisibilizes the techniques of performance and da da da. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. It's a different thing. People from visual art context think they can just come and take parts of the form and not respect the formal system. And then COVID happens and suddenly everyone from performance wants to make videos with absolutely no respect or interest in the lineage of the formal system, and it's painful. 
first of all, I think something that has disappointed me sometimes with critiques of my work has been the confusion of sexuality with sensuality. It's a sensuality. And I think that that gets critiqued in a certain way because I have what is read and understood as a woman's body. I wouldn't even know how to contain my body if I tried because I don't see why I should. I absolutely delight. I'm not making art as sort of like a, just something I rolled into. It's like really like something I really love doing, you know, and I really love being in my images and activating my images and working with affect and really connecting and the idea of video for me performing through the camera. That's really exciting for me. And that comes, of course, from like growing up with music videos, which really do that performance through the camera lens in, in a way that's somehow naive, but is also really alive and it's juicy. It's sensual. It's not necessarily sexual, but then it's also interesting that if it is sexual, then suddenly we're in a moral panic minefield. You were talking about your, is it topless theory reading? Topless reading theory, one way or the other. It's people with their top off reading a book. Essentially, this is what it is, often a theory book but not always. You were just mentioning before, you know, that in the visual art world, and this is interesting for me to talk about because now I'm in this year-long residency within the visual art context. You know, I've defected. I've gone over to the other side, but I'm trailing all of my weird erotic performance debris behind me, you know, it's just how it is. And um, I wonder if part of the reticence or, or people not wanting to or hesitating to just do these simple pictures on Instagram that are really no big deal from my perspective, although I understand everyone's neuroses and problems and things to work through are different, is because of the professionalization of the art world. I think it's to do with the professionalization of people's practices to the point where they can't afford to make such an uncareful, reckless move and so this is why I think we also end up with so much fucking dry work. Not a drop of any liquid, no gassy stench. It's crumbling dry. Drawings and theory. It's a desert. I've also worked with my own body out of necessity because I can afford to put my own body in the frame. Because I actually believe in paying performers, which not everybody does necessarily. You know, there's only so much social capital that any appearance could surely be worth. Yeah, I think there are only certain kinds of bodies that are given permission, even within the queerest corners of the discourse. It's still a very thin androgynous body, or it's a very fat person. And anybody kind of in between that, like I know that my body really just gets read as an undisciplined body. We, whoever that is, are not meant to make these distinctions, but this is something that really troubles and bothers me, is the reading of my body as something undisciplined, whereas it would be queerer if it were bigger or smaller, but not this in-between place. You know, I've got the unfortunate centrist body. So many feminisms or people's claim to feminism is often transphobic, sex worker-phobic, femphobic how if your politics are one or all three of those things, I don't understand how you're a feminist. You're lying to yourself and everybody else. You're a gender essentialist working with certain desire for certain different labor conditions, but you're not a feminist. You can't be a capitalist and be a feminist. Sorry, you can't. These are ideologies and they're incompatible. When I say femme, I'm talking about a queer identity. I'm not talking about a straight identity. I'm talking about a very conscious intentionality around understanding oneself through and presenting oneself through and with what are understood as feminine aesthetics. I love this position. I love what it does in terms of disrupting the easy kind of white liberal straight feminism of the male gaze as something with a very broad brushstroke. Femme is a queer political position and decision. I could definitely unpack and explain my femness, my lipstick and my clothes and my color and my this and my that, but, and of course the easy dismissive, I found it with a lot of white middle-class German feminists, you know, this very dismissive 
I was a stripper for eight years. I've seen a lot of plastic surgery, a lot of all this stuff. I don't have a problem with any of these things, and it's not my place to have a problem with it, and I'll probably do it myself. These kind of really twisted, pleasureless ideas of like, oh, no, penetration is bad, so therefore getting your lips done or Botox is included within this penetrative no-go zone. And if you want to look a certain way, then surely that can only be in service of the male gaze, which is such an essentialist, problematic concept anyway. This idea of taking pleasure in being a peacock, in being a flaming, delicious creature, in looking amazing, in having bright pink lips and whatever the fuck else, you know, like it's, it's pleasurable, it's exciting. It's also about transformation. And I think this is also where the critique really comes from is of feminists and this thing of, oh, it makes you a whore, which brings into question what's wrong with whores. Yeah. Why is this an insult? But, you know, of course, the whore is marginalized and policed for commodifying their own desire, for proposing their own fuckability rather than waiting to be told and being grateful about it. And that's so disruptive. And it's the same for femmes, you know. And I mean femme from a queer position. I don't mean femme in terms of like real housewives of Beverly Hills or whatever, you know. Which is like a really strange, unconscious straight drag, which I think is delicious and awesome and camp. But it's not what I'm talking about, you know. I'm talking about a queer delight in what is conventionally understood as feminine aesthetics. It's very much to do with people giving themselves permission to take pleasure in the visual field rather than to make oneself small and invisible or have to be exactly like a 1920s modernist to be taken seriously. And to be taken seriously by whom? I don't know if I even care anymore. A certain radical position is to argue and fight for ethical pleasure to be taken seriously. And that ethical pleasure can be everything from engaging with sex work, from whatever position in the contract, to uh, being as playful as one wants with their daily costume. That comes from a number of places for me in terms of my own biography, whatever. But in terms of the work I make, that pleasure comes in terms of my use of a pop aesthetic. I like it because it's so reduced, yet it vibrates with so much reference. And that referential material is within the pop archive. It's not like footnote, adorno, blah, 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 duh, 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 a gambon, blah, 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 blah. This is buzzing with connections to things that happen in the visual field. And I think that so much of my subjectivity, for better or worse, was really developed through obsessively watching music videos when I was a kid and loving them as a space that gave me permission to rehearse being multiple people. It was about the permission to rehearse multiple subjectivities and that has just like carried on into my work now because I really do keep trying how two-dimensional can I render these aesthetics that I'm working with that they're actually like... 5D bursting at the seams in some kind of affective sense or referential sense. It's a trick that I've been working on for some time. And I just take pleasure in those aesthetics. I thought it was interesting what you said earlier about color and, you know, the masculine ascent. That makes me more interested in color. Of course, I feel the pressure, and especially now that I've kind of done this defection to the visual art world, or I'm like, you know, post-media or whatever, encountering new scenes and new people and new conventions. And then, of course, then that produces new anxieties. That's that default position to new anxieties of how to, how to conform, how to pass, how to be allowed to stay in the room. And in my experience, resisting those things is the only way forward. I'm very wary of critiques that are based in people aren't being authentic, it's fake, and it's vain. I think there's a misogynist root to most of these critiques. I don't know, it's complicated because, again, when I'm talking about Instagram, I'm talking about a very particular world of Instagram that I know, whereas there's this whole other world of Instagram of influencer, like, you know, this crazy, cool filter, long, blonde-haired women kind of, like, doing 
diet shakes and someone sent me some bed sheets, like weird, that world. And I don't know anything about it, but I do know what Instagram is to me in my world. Instagram, of course, is owned by Facebook, so there's no real ethical way to use Instagram. I also love Instagram. It's an extension of this pleasure in pop, and I don't believe it's a guilty pleasure. I just really fucking like it. I like it because it's super visual. I like it because I like taking photos of myself because I'm a triple Leo, and I like that. Also, for me, Instagram has been a point of access in terms of curators and things like that, which was a total surprise to me. But now I know that I'm really watching myself in terms of not trying to play into that too much because then it goes off, then it smells bad, it's, then it loses its thing. When, when I was innocent to this, it was like astounding to me, but also exciting because there was a way in, a way to be seen, and there was a way to celebrate aesthetics, which I still believe in. Even in my Instagram corner of the world, there's some really cringy shit that happens, especially when people know famous people and in stories and whatever, you know, and like you asked me about this in the questions that you sent, like when we tag other people, when we have pictures of other people or us with other people, I see it and it's so clearly cynical in terms of here is a very cynical act of me working to accumulate more social capital via proximity with this person and by insinuating a proximity to these people. And it's obvious and it's ugly, but they're doing it. I tag people because I'm like, I love you so much, you're my friend, I adore you, you know, like, ha, 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 now you're famous on Instagram, this kind of mentality, you know, like, in a playful way. But there's also people I know who, if they have lots and lots of followers or whatever, I'm not. Gonna, I'm just not going to put a picture of them. I don't need to distribute their image. And I don't need people to know I'm in the room with them. It's really dirty. I saw a, an interesting take on it recently that in some corners of Instagram, it started to feel like LinkedIn. let's call it a politic or a strategy of strategic alliances is what led to during the upsurge in Black Lives Matter awareness and the fight for black liberation, people's awareness of the performativity of politics on the platform and people's strategic alliances and and all of this kind of disingenuous possibility on Instagram in particular. It was this incredible moment of people sharing resources and people learning information and Of course, it's died away again in a wave. I'm also on Twitter a lot and, you know, like black Twitter trans. My Twitter streams, my Twitter verticals, I get a lot of information. I don't participate on Twitter in the same way I do on Instagram. I feel very literate in how to be on Instagram. On Twitter, I feel afraid. It's like a discursive war zone and it's very combative where people are positioning for different things because it's academics and writers positioning themselves It's the same, it's just not with images and whatever. I also know people from very marginalised backgrounds who have been critiqued for not posting enough online about their activism. And I know someone who was told that offline activism is nothing. It's about what happens online. And of course, this critique was coming from a white middle-class European man to someone with very different intersections than that. So this kind of frenzy about performing oneself and performing one's political position is disingenuous, especially if people are not doing activism in other ways, in a very real politic way to do with the distribution of wealth and time and resources and making space, giving up things. This is the elephant in the room in activism in general. It's a very classic kind of trope that you see time and time again within leftist circles of male leftist leaders suddenly being found out to be abusers. You know, these stories come up all the time. Another magazine has to disband and another movement has to disband and another chapter of whatever. And it's this thing of performing this very particular kind of, you know, global humanism and actually just being a fucking asshole. But throwing around the word praxis a lot. Yes, this happens in feminism. I think this happens in 
or what social media actually does is somehow random accelerate how visible it, people become in terms of the mask dropping. People have strange relationships to power and we live in a very imperfect set of conditions. There's a lot to unpack. Social media has done two things for me. It's helped me build an audience when I didn't have one and didn't have resources to pay someone to do that for me. And I didn't go to art school. I don't have those networks. It's like autodidact out there on Instagram doing their thing. Uh, but it also, like you say, you know, it keeps me really connected in a very real-time kind of way to conversation and discourse. I'm on chats all day with people and sharing images and things. I don't know how necessarily healthy that is. There's a decent critique to be made of that, but at the same time, my thinking progresses through it. I think through my practice, and I definitely think through and with others on social media in a way that I enjoy because it's not formalized. You sit on a panel and suddenly you have brain freeze and you just want to cry, whereas like you're chatting with a couple of people on WhatsApp and like you know dragging something off Instagram and sharing it, and it's cool and fun conversation, and I am fortunate enough to have space in my day for that. Even beyond, you know, someone like a famous choreographic theorist, in recent weeks, you know, I've seen people, oh, you know, give up the platform. So and it's always people who at a certain, they've got like 20,000 followers and gigs and, hey, guys, step away from the platform. And it's like, well, people are in pursuit of you, whether you're on the platform or not. Let's not pretend that this is some horizontal crazy party we're having. It's pure capitalism in many, many ways. And acknowledge your status within that. Acknowledge where you're at in terms of the numbers. This urging people to disappear off programs. Also, they haven't disappeared. Hey, everyone, let's step away. And they don't step away. We're sitting here kind of talking about Instagram and really TikTok is where it's at these days. I'm not going to be going on TikTok, but oh my God, how I wish... When I was 10, TikTok had existed because it's like that whole music video vibe. And I love it in Germany because children aren't allowed to have their faces on TikTok for good reasons. All of these strategies that get employed to produce these TikToks in Germany by kids and they're really amazing to watch because of how to get the subjectivity in there even when your face isn't even in there. But then back to the face and the selfie, there was a huge kind of discourse and debate around the selfie. So much of it was just about shaming women, full stop. Shaming women for valuing themselves. I don't buy into that too much. I'm a selfie fan. Selfies by, like, my parents are in their 60s and the selfies that they send, like, they're just on WhatsApp now in the last year. And in Australia, there's a second lockdown now and my mum has been making masks and then she sent photos of my dad modelling the masks. The framing is always just, you feel the tension between the parent and the technology. <laughs> it's always an accident. It's never quite intentional. It's an approximation of a photo. I guess if there's one last thing that I would want to say, I would recommend a book. And that book is Feminism Interrupted, Disrupting Power by Lola Olufemi. Uh, Lola Olufemi is a black feminist writer and organizer from London. And this book really articulates a really fantastic kind of contemporary, intersectional, radical feminist possibility. It's a call to arms, it's a history, it's a, a toolkit or a how-to manual. It's just brilliant. It's brilliantly written. It deconstructs power relations in ways that are incredibly compelling and it certainly helped me advance my thinking on many, many, many subjects from the anti-feminism of the state and reproductive rights to why abolition is feminist. I strongly recommend this book, Feminism Interrupted, Disrupting Power, Lola Olufemi.
Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Institut Tussouche, a joint venture with Grazina Kulczyk and ArtStations Foundation CH. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, cultural, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch. That's institut-kunst.ch. Or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Instituto Sush is part of Museum Sush, an initiative by ArtStations Foundation CH and Grazina Kulczyk. More information on museumsush.ch. That's museumsush.ch. Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing, Elena Ziza. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research assistant, Alice Wilke. Technical support, Esther Hunziger. Copyright by Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW and Institut Sush Art Stations Foundation CH 2020.